Our scriptures this morning, the first is from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and do testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For they who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. The word of the Lord. And our second scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. 1 through 8, sorry. I am the vine, and the Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in, I'm sorry, he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, 
because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, and you bear much fruit and become my disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. Our culture defines love as a biochemical response to stimuli. Be it the thrill of downhill on your bike, or that first glorious taste of chocolate, the stupor of alcohol, or, we're adults here, uh, orgasm. Our culture tells us it's the neurochemical experience that matters. Love is dopamine at work. But as the song goes, is that all there is? Is that really what we think love is and ought to be? Biochemical, neurological responses to stimuli that come our way? Leslie Leyland Fields, in her memoir, Surviving on an Island of Grace, a memoir of Alaska, describes the early years of her marriage with Duncan. They married out of college and decided to try their hand at salmon fishing. Now, salmon fishing, for those of you who watch the Travel Channel and watch shows that talk about fishing in Alaska, you know that it's seasonal, it's dangerous, it's hard work, it's busy, and then it's not. And it was that last piece of working hard for a short period of time and then having the rest of the year to themselves that was the appeal for this young couple right out of college to buy a salmon boat and fish. Her memoir is a story of the ups and downs of the fishing industry and the stress that uh, occurs in a relationship. Seven years Duncan and, and Leslie work hard at salmon fishing. In the early years, they had to get used to working together. This couple who had dated and had been friends and, and experienced intimacy also had to experience the hierarchy of Duncan being the captain of the boat and Leslie not being the captain of the boat. And that was not an easy experience for either one of them. In the later years, as, as they got successful at this and also began to have children, Leslie stayed at home and had to deal with the silence and the separation of fishing season. And after seven years of growth and change, life together, they realized that life together had become two individuals living in proximity some of the time. 
that silence had become the norm, not the aberration in their lives, and that that silence had led to a gulf between them. Now, in our dopamine-saturated culture, we wouldn't blink an eye if we said to Leslie, get out of there. What are you doing, girl? This, is a, this, is, this isn't healthy. But Leslie decided one summer it was time to talk. Not all at once, and not about everything at once, but slowly, almost imperceptibly, a conversation began. And at the end of that summer, she writes, Reconciliation that summer was not inevitable. I did not expect it. But slowly it came, for Duncan listened to me. Duncan listened to me. We think, well, duh, that's what he should do. But our biochemical responses aren't rewarded by listening. There's no, there's no dopamine that floods into our system when we listen. Listen is a patient act of struggle. And yet it heals a relationship. Our two texts this morning tell us about how God loves and listens. John 15, 1-8 is another one of those statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels, the ego and me, I am statements, clearly hearkening back to the encounter of Moses and Yahweh at the burning bush. I am who I am. Jesus in John's Gospel, uses the same rhetorical phrase, this time translated from the Greek, and he says, I am the vine. I am the source of life. And he goes on to explain a kind of life cycle of what it means to be a Jesus follower. He says there's pruning and bearing fruit, and we we have bought into a kind of interpretation of this passage that's highly focused on the pruning aspect. If you don't bear fruit, God's going to cut you loose, and he's going to gather all those who have been cut loose, and he's going to burn you up. That's, that's how we've heard that passage. At least that's how I grew up hearing the passage. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, in the cycle of being a follower of mine, there are seasons of pruning and seasons of bearing fruit. Anybody who has gone into our church garden has seen that. And, and has seen what happens if pruning doesn't take place. If you don't harvest the okra at the right time, it's just not as good. It gets too big. And it gets fibrous. And it's sort of like eating a baseball. <laughs> the, 
The pruning and bearing fruit is part of our life cycle as a disciple. Jesus is saying there, there will be seasons in our life where we feel like there's pruning going on. We can, we can call it downsizing. We can call it right sizing. We can call it whatever we want, but it's, it's a time of letting go. And then there's a time of bearing fruit. This harkens back to the language of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season. And Jesus goes on to say that by being connected there is growth. By being anchored in the vine, which is anchored in the soil, growth happens. And so Jesus emphasizes in this story the importance of being connected to Him, to one another. We call that discipleship. Discipleship for Jesus wasn't about mastering a bunch of facts about God. Discipleship for Jesus was connecting to Him, to one another, and together to the Father. That's why in the historic Anabaptist movement we talk about discipleship as following Jesus daily in life. That, that our walk with Christ, we're not alone, we're connected and accountable and in this journey together. 1 John deals with a different aspect. The Greek word agape is used repeatedly. Agape and its cognates is an obscure Greek word. It really doesn't show up much in classical Greek, but it is a word for love. It's a unique word for a unique kind of love. John uses this word instead of phileo, friendship, or eros, sexual love. He uses this love to describe God's desire for us, God's relationship with us. The translators of the Old Testament into Greek, those that, that created what we call today the Septuagint, came across passages in the Hebrew that spoke passionately of God's love. And they realized that, that the Greek mindset had dopamine in mind, was saturated with dopamine. And, and they... They wanted a different word, and so they picked this obscure word in the Greek and said, this is it, agape. And so in 1 John we read of the source and the purpose of agape, that, that God's love makes our love possible. We think we have to gin up the capacity to love God. That God is this immutable holy other being sequestered in heaven, far away from us, we're down here. And John tells us, no, 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 that's not it at all. The incarnation flipped the scenario. Infinite possibilities, tiny little space. It's from Aladdin, if you were looking for... <laughs> cultural reference there. God's love makes it possible 
for us to love. The fact that God entered into our experience and loves us makes it possible for us to love. Agape, John says, brings at least three implications into our lives. First of all, it gives us new life. It it frees us to start again. It frees us to reboot the system. It frees us to, to allow ourselves to try yet again to be a follower. It releases us from fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. The end of World War II, a management consultant named Duran was contracted by the U.S. Army to come to Japan to help rebuild the shattered industrial base of Japan. Duran, a practicing Roman Catholic, stumbled across this verse in his private devotions one day and said, that's it. That's the key. And the Duran method of management saturated Japanese industry in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s with the core belief that perfect love casts out all fear. What did that mean? Well, it meant that in a Japanese assembly line, everybody had the power to stop the assembly line and say, there's a defect in these parts. We've got to fix this before it can go on. Everybody had that power. U.S. assembly line, you felt, you, you knew the shop foreman was going to come down on you for doing that. And you needed the protection of your union representative to intervene. But Japan, perfect love casts out all fear. So everybody can say, wait a second. We've got to rethink this. We've got to do this over. Do it right this time. There is a release from fear. And that release multiplied by 10,000 times is what John's talking about in our lives. There is no cause for us to be afraid of God or one another or the world we inhabit. And the other implication of agape is the capacity for love. That we become capable of being loving people and receiving love because of God's love for us. Now John is writing into a church that's full of conflict. And so he hammers the point home with a polemic in verses 20 and 21. He's not, he's not being snarky. He's simply saying, if you love God and you love one another, you're going to change the world. And so these two texts conspire together to remind us that as we stay connected to Jesus and one another, we experience discipleship, and as we, as we experience discipleship, we experience agape, love offered without expectation. And so it is our discipleship, our connectedness to Christ that leads to love. And we think somehow it's the other way around. We've got we to love Jesus enough to where he'll notice us and let us into his kingdom. No. Jesus already loves us completely and entirely and fully. 
All we have to do is stay connected. A new book by Scott McKnight called A Fellowship of Difference. Differences. Difference. It's hard to say. Uh, talks about this and talks about the essence of love in terms of four practices. That, that the love of Christian discipleship is all about seeking to transform enemies into neighbors. To take those from whom we are estranged and even at odds with and welcome them as friends. And that happens through a four-step process. First, first of all, through love's covenant, a rugged and stubborn commitment to another person. Rugged and stubborn. Not a fair-weather friend, not a, well, whatever. Not an I'm okay, you're okay. But just as God's love is a love that will not let us go, so we are called to a rugged, durable, stubborn commitment to the other. Once we've made that commitment, we live it out by being present. The rugged, stubborn commitment to be with another person. We, we can't love people who we don't spend time with. That's perhaps the primary reason we do what we do on Sunday mornings. So that we can love God together and love each other. But even as we spend time with those we say we love, we have to become their advocate. That rugged, stubborn commitment to be for the other person. This is more than tolerance. This is different than tolerance. Tolerance is what a, a liberal democracy can offer. Tolerance can say, you're okay. Whatever it is you're about, it, that's fine with me. Go for it. You're, you're all right. The gospel calls us to something much deeper, much richer than tolerance. The gospel calls us to advocacy, to say to our enemy, I am here for you. I've got some enemies. I'm not sure I could say that to you. Even at my advanced state of discipleship. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but that's the call that we live towards. That somehow we're, we're willing to commit to that journey of being able to advocate for someone who we don't very much like. That's hard for us. Or someone who we disagree with. Someone whose theology is different than ours. Someone whose practice is different than ours. We become their advocates, not just tolerant of them. But all of that leads to love's direction. A rugged, stubborn commitment to a shared journey towards Christ-likeness. This is where things, where the rubber hits the road, as it were. That real love, genuine love, comes to this apex 
in that we're sharing in a journey towards Christ-likeness. You're going to take different turns than I will in that journey, but we're in it together. We're going to look for each other on the road. We're going to call out to each other. We're going to take care of each other. We're going to walk together. But we're going to be on that journey together. That's where love's fruit is born. So this morning, some questions for us to think about. Which enemy is God calling you to make your neighbor? I've got a whole list, and I don't like looking at it very much. How will you become stubbornly committed to your enemy? How will you invest time with your enemy? Time that that other substance that has godlike power over our lives, money and time. How will you invest time in your enemy when you don't have enough time for your friends and for the things in your life that matter most to you? How do you make time for an enemy? How you become their advocate, not just merely tolerant of them, but advocate for them. Can you imagine sharing a journey of Christ-likeness with your enemy? And what about that process makes you afraid? Well, one more thing. One more thing. From the British philosopher Bertrand Russell. The root of the matter, the thing I mean he says, is love. Christian love or compassion. If you feel this, you have a motive for existence, a guide for action, a reason for courage, an imperative, necessi- an, an imperative necessity for intellectual honesty. Love, brothers and sisters, is not dopamine in action. Love is God in action through us. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen.